Visit RTI on the web at english.rti.org.tw. Welcome to Radio Taiwan International. I am Natalie So. Thank you for joining us. And up this hour, we have some great programs for you. We have Lights, Camera, Asia with Jake Chen, who will tell you all about Tokyo Story, that film, and In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. But first, join us for Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan. It's Thursday, February 20th, and in the studio we have Shirley Lin. Hello. Jake Chen. Hello. And I am Natalie So. We'll be telling you what the difference between the flu and COVID-19 is. Also, what schools are planning to do as they open up again amidst um, concerns about COVID-19. And the government is planning to give furloughed workers pay during their time off and some other opportunities. A lot more stories coming right up. Stay tuned. Okay, well, you know, some people have been comparing COVID-19 with the flu. People are saying the flu is more common, which actually is true. So we should be on our guard against the flu as well. And if you are concerned about the flu, then you can get a flu shot. So anyways, do you guys know the difference between the symptoms of the flu and the coronavirus? The symptoms I know are corona- similar. I know coronavirus, uh, the symptoms are more respiratory system focused. Oh. Yeah, so actually it's the lower respiratory tract. Mm. So we're talking about coughing and having difficulty breathing. So this is more common with COVID-19. Now, as for the flu, you're going to see upper respiratory, like uh, your runny nose and a sore throat. Okay. So does that make sense? Yeah. And for COVID-19, over 80% had a fever as well. So, of course, that goes for the flu. People have fevers in the flu as well. Yeah, and you get sore. Right. So we all know what the flu feels like, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. But um, anyways, it's good to know uh, a little bit about the difference. Also, it was interesting. There was some research that came out that found that smokers are actually more susceptible to catching COVID-19. So they've discovered that levels of an enzyme called ACE2 acts as a receptor of the virus. And this Enzyme is higher in smokers. So if you are smoking and you don't want to catch the disease, it's, it would be good to stop smoking. Yeah, this yeah, will be the right reason. Yeah, stop attacking your immune system every day. Really? Right. Actually, I mean, some people are saying it's, it's easier to get sick by the flu or die by the flu. Well, actually, the numbers, I mean, it's really hard to compare because we're still figuring out all the numbers um, from China. But from the ones that we do have, the mortality rate is about 2%. Whereas for the common flu, it's only about 0.1%. It's just that the common flu is very common. It's, mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who have it all over the world. And, yeah. and people it, die from it, too. That's A lot of people die from it. I think we've had over 50 people in Taiwan die from it yeah. uh, this winter. So it's actually mm-hmm. more deadly. Yeah. Um, if you look at the um, the fatalities, it's, it's a bigger problem. Because we had one person die from it this past Sunday, right? Uh, right. COVID-19. But anyway, I think it's good... Um, you know, a good thing at this time is that people are becoming more aware of, of um, hygiene, washing their hands, and ways to prevent um, from getting sick. So I think that 
although we don't need to panic, you know, about all the diseases that are out there, um, we can have some good practices to keep us healthy. So anyways, that's the difference between the flu and COVID-19. suspended school ever since Chinese New Year when the COVID-19 broke out. But uh, next week, students are going back to school. And tell us how they're adjusting some activities. Right. Um, as we talked about earlier this week, that uh, a number of experts from National Taiwan University, so this is Taiwan's top university, have suggested a number of measures, you know, for example, setting different break schedules for different levels of classes. So mm -hmm. you don't have the entire school all having a break outside, interacting with each other at the same time. Um, so yeah, so far from the education ministry, there is no announcement or even a plan to delay school further. So we can probably assume that a school will start uh, after a two-week delay uh, on next Wednesday. Now, uh, earlier today, earlier yesterday, uh, Taoyuan Mayor Zheng Wenchan has came out and announced that all the schools in Taoyuan, which is a, a city up north here from Taipei, will suspend a number of activities such as uh, opening activities and uh, a lot of uh, outside of field trips will be canceled as well. Oh. Um, I think the the opening activity opening ceremonies are suspended for good reasons right mm -hmm. that's why i don't have... think students enjoy most of those anyway right <laughs> the opening ceremonies i, <laughs> I mean they're all like you know adults uh, right. talking and making speeches speech. and stuff yeah <laughs> right for students you know uh I think maybe that's good news for them it's like standing out there for 25 minutes right so you don't <laughs> yeah. need that uh when there's a an epidemic going on uh, field trips, not sure how, how students feel about that, but um, all the field trips will be canceled, um, at least for the foreseeable future. So, You know, an interesting thing that um, I did see on the news is that COVID-19 is actually not that prevalent among children. Right. So yeah, they, so I heard. Yeah, so they seem to have some kind of um, immunity yeah. to it. And yeah. so, you know, maybe we're a little bit too uptight about the schools. Maybe they're the least people who are going to get um, infected by this. Right. My well, guess, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, yeah, my guess is that because, you know, some of these schools take in uh, Chinese students and maybe they, they? they worry about None of them those have students returned. coming. They can't return. They, they, they can't. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a daughter in China, Shanghai, right? So yeah. how is she doing? She's doing okay. This? She's staying home. And, Does she um, have to work? No. No. And uh, just, just, you know, contact each other through... Uh, video conferencing, whatever, and uh, and I said, what are you going to do about food? And she said, they can just order, you oh, know, right. delivery. Uber eats. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, so they can deliver everything and anything. Yeah. So that's less a thing to worry. That's interesting. Well, it seems like a lot of companies are not back to normal in China. A right. lot of factories, uh, at least partially closed, and it's it's affecting people and companies in Taiwan as well. Actually, the next story here is the government is trying to help out industries, businesses, because, you know, they're suffering too. If they don't have business and they have to pay everyone's salary and there's nothing for them to do, then, you know, they they kind of want them to take a break. Some of them are get furloughed and, and, you know, they say take some time off, you know. I have friends who are probably going to be on that list and they're really concerned. Really? Yeah. Really? Did their companies already warn them or...? Um, it's, you know, some of them are in their 40s, so they're like medium level senior employees and oh. they get a sense that, you know, because they know the list is being made. So they're just worried that they might be on the list. Oh, wow. So, you know, because 
when the, the huge market and the huge chain, you know, it didn't stop in China entirely, but it slowed down quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So when that demand slows down, a lot of companies here, you know, they, they don't have they anywhere to ship their, their stuff. Yeah. Right. So, so it affects everything, I think. Yeah. I mean, China is such a big economy. It's such an important part of the world economy. I know a lot of activities in Japan have suspended as well. Trade shows, um, a lot of like key meetings have been pushed back or canceled. So really, there's that too. So we can only be thankful that we can still keep our job here at RTI. And <laughs> yeah, for now. So yeah, we're <laughs> kind of like far apart from each other. We don't sit yeah. too close. <laughs> We can do interviews via the phone if we really want to. Yeah, right? you can be sure that you know our program is still getting out there to where you guys are. You know, not to worry. Right. So, well, anyway, um, the government, um, the labor uh, ministry, has said that workers who are furloughed due to the impact of COVID nineteen will receive up to, well, it's about uh, nineteen thousand NT dollars or roughly six hundred US dollars a month in subsidies. So, I mean, it's it's not a whole lot, but it's not that bad either. Mm-hmm. That's not lower than the minimum salary. Here? It, it is, is lower than minimum wage. I think minimum wage is something around 23, something like yes. that. Yeah. So it's enough to survive on in Taiwan. I mean, um, yeah, food, no food is cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rent is comparatively cheap if you compare it to other places in the world. So you can survive on that. And what's interesting, too, is they're also running training courses and they're inviting everyone who's affected to attend so you can get some professional training they're running them all the way through the end of august are they doing that online or are they actually physically getting people uh that's an interesting question because yeah, like kind of defeats the purpose if you get people in the same room well yeah i mean i mean i don't think that many people have the disease here in taiwan so mm. i don't think we have to be that careful right but we can um, feel safer well i guess those people can then learn a new skill or something and yeah i think that's a great job. opportunity I mean, okay. usually people don't have time to do stuff like that, right? Yeah. They have to work. And well, they will get paid for taking classes, too. Mm, oh, yeah, right, right. Um, I, I was thinking, you know, Taiwan is known as a workaholic country. And I guess a time like this, I mean, I know some companies, they let the people take a break, you know, just stay home and, you know, rest up, I think, which is probably a good thing. I know, like, a restaurant, a well-known restaurant, decide to uh, let half of its staff take a break mm-hmm. so they can rest up because uh, what not overwork. Uh, it's not Ding Taifong, is it? Uh, I don't think so, right? No, no, no. <laughs> this is uh, a high-class Japanese restaurant. So, but anyway, uh-huh. yeah. Interesting. I mean, I've been to some restaurants. They're really empty. Mm. The ones that used to be so crowded, you have to like wait in line and like yeah, no one there. I, I was no so surprised. Anymore, so. I'm no like, well, this lines. is good for the customer, but not good for the, <laughs> the business. Yeah. So it is good, though, to see the government uh, trying to help out um, businesses at this time. Okay, Shirley, tell us about a group from Japan who Mm. is still traveling to Taiwan. Yeah, we're talking about uh, this uh, uh, school, Xiaosong University. Sorry, I don't know the exact Japanese pronunciation of that. Um, they sent 19 female students to Taiwan to uh, its sister school in Zhanghua uh, for a four-week exchange program. Now, it's interesting because they are a very small uh, town compared to Zhanghua. And so 
you know, it's very quiet little town, and not a lot of、um, you know excitement in that town, and they don't get a lot of foreigners and tourists in that place, so they they don't hear much about COVID nineteen where they are. But、um, the the teacher that's taking them over to Taiwan for this exchange program, he actually is a teacher that teaches Chinese. Um, over at that school in Japan, and so he's always really enjoyed these trips, taking different groups of students on exchange programs to Taiwan. So he really didn't want to disappoint these 19、uh, students. So actually,、um, the school here in Sanhua Jianguo in,、um, Institute of Technology, they were concerned, but the teacher, the Japanese、uh, in Japan,、um, he decided to make sure that all the students, 19 of them, had the physical. Uh, examination taken. They're all healthy, and they even signed like these affidavits saying that you know if anything happens to them, that the school doesn't have to take responsibility. That kind of thing. And so they're here, and、um, they are really excited and happy. This is、happy. the、uh, Komatsu University, by the way. Oh, Komatsu. Thank you. Right.、Yeah. Okay, Komatsu. That's it. I should have known. <laughs> okay, but anyway, the first first thing is that、um, the first class they took. Was they couldn't cover their excitement was to learn how to make pineapple cakes. Wow,、and、I would like to learn how to do that.、Sounds、and like the that, fun, that's、yeah. cute. And and the pearl milk tea. So that's what they、oh、were gosh, looking forward to.、Fun. So I guess that's one thing why、sure. they didn't want the trip to be canceled, right? Right. Well, first of all, they would have Chinese classes every morning,、uh-huh. and then in the afternoon, I guess they have different activities planned for them and everything. So, yeah, there is a group of nineteen, you know,、uh, students who are not afraid of、uh, the virus that's going around. But well, we、um, don't have that many taking, cases here in Taiwan. Yeah, I know they really cases. don't have to worry that much, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think it, it is okay. Um, to come to Taiwan,、um, actually, we do have some news from Japan.、Um, there was a survey there because you know the the big cruise ship, the Diamond Princess,、um, is docked at Yokohama,、mm-hmm. and、uh, that's been in the news a lot because that's the biggest cluster of infections outside of China. Is it still there? Um, I well, I think so. They they just started disembarking yesterday. Right.、Okay. They're doing it in groups. So yesterday, I mean, of course, the people who have the disease have already been sent to hospitals. But、um, yesterday there was a group of 500 elderly, mostly elderly people, who disembarked first, and they're going to slowly disembark everyone. There's roughly almost 4,000 people on on that ship. So,、mm-hmm. but anyway,、um, so the Japanese, well, well, they're very concerned as well about the COVID-19. More than 85% are concerned about it、um, in their country, and about half of them are not happy with the way their government has dealt with it. So,、um, and regarding the Diamond Princess, almost half of them said they shouldn't have kept the people on there. Other people, about forty percent, said they should have. So I don't know. I mean, because <laughs> you got different opinions. Yeah. Yeah. Quarantining the virus is a very divisive issue. I spoke to a medical expert a couple of days ago in my downtime, and he said quarantining the people is important, but it's I think a lot of people ignore that you got to keep those people being quarantined, the vast majority of which aren't sick because of the low infection rate.、Mm-hmm. You got to keep them. Uh, healthy healthy and happy too, because、oh. if you stress them out, that's they're, true. They're, you don't feed them well, and they don't see the sun. Their immune system, and when they're in a bad mood, all that combined, that drives their immune system down. So when you see like the number of people infected on the, on, for example, on the ship increases, it's not that they're really supposed to get sick in the first place. Yeah,、mm-hmm. yeah. I wonder if it made it worse or, or better. It's hard yeah, to say. In、right? some cases, it might have made it worse. I mean, maybe、mm-hmm. if they. I mean, but there's so many of them. If they could spread them out to different 
places for them to be checked and yeah i don't know i mean that's a really big group of people it's a huge logistical undertaking right right and there was a group the first americans who came back from wuhan and I was listening to American Public Radio about when they finished their quarantine. It's really interesting because you had mentioned you should keep them happy, right? Yeah. Well, so they were quarantined in this were they? air. Yeah, they were happy. I okay. mean, they had a great time during their quarantine. <laughs> they, you know, they Somebody let them have a... some video classes. They set up a playground for, for kids, kids uh-huh. and let them have pizza and gourmet <laughs> coffee. And and actually, a lot of them became friends. I mean, even though right. they had their own room, but they. They could attend classes together online and they can chat online. Right, right. So it was kind of like they were sad when it's over. They're like, oh, you got to come visit me in this state, you know, where I live. And so, I mean, I don't know if they do that to this extent Mm. in other countries. I think people in Taiwan thought they were taken uh, care of quite well in terms of food and accommodations, but I don't know if they had any fun stuff in (laughs) there to keep them happier. Yeah. So anyways, I thought that was, that was fun. It was good to hear that uh, they were taken care of well. Anyway, you know, people in Japan also, some companies are allowing their employees to stay home, to work from home. And, um, you know, you know how the metros there are extremely crowded. So, you know, to avoid uh, the metro system. Mm, yes. So um, a lot of countries in Asia actually are starting to make allowances for people to, to help them not get sick. Before we end our show, Shirley, tell us about this guy who got an interesting mask. Yeah. Okay, so this Taiwanese guy, doesn't say which city he was in, but, um, you know, he actually one day thought that he was going to go and go up to a pharmacy, I guess, to check on the schedule because there's the rationing of um, two masks per person in a week. And just when he went to that pharmacy, he realized that, oh, the line wasn't that long. So he decided to get in line. And within 10 minutes, he was able to get two masks. And he was really happy about that. Good for him. Until he opened it up and realized that, oh, he's not sure. He said he's going to take a lot of courage to wear these masks outdoors because apparently to him, they're very feminine because they're like, you know, um, leopard patterns oh gee um, oh, leopard patterns that's not feminine that's they're not like style that's better than pink right actually it's not like totally painted in pink but those leopard patterns were actually colored pink oh, right? in places that, black and pink that's okay. very uh, feminine and flamboyant <laughs> oh my at the same time. gosh that's so, so interesting yeah that's a, it's so funny so he kind of talked about this on dcard which is a social platform for people to discuss things like this and um, other people were saying that, oh, don't you worry. I got a friend, uh, I guess a male friend, who got Hello Kitty oh, um, no. you know, um, masks and said, you know, you're, you're better off than, than he is. But then there was somebody else who said that, yeah, I got weird ones too. And I decided to make a cloth mask and stuff it inside so that nobody can see what's inside. Oh, that's right. You can so, do a two-layer mask, right? Yeah. A cloth one on the outside. And right. The so this guy felt a little happier. So, well, okay, I cover got that solutions. One up. Yeah. <laughs> the things guy would do do not look feminine. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it hard to be a guy? I mean, we can look kind of masculine if we want to, right? We can oh, yeah. Wear, so it's hard to be work. a guy. <laughs> you got to be careful what yeah. you wear and everything. All right. Well, thanks for um, uh, staying. Uh, thanks for joining us on here in Taiwan, and do stay tuned for Lights Camera Asia and in the spotlight for here in Taiwan. I'm Natalie So. I'm Shirley Lin. And I'm Jake Chen. See ya.
Listen. Are you listening? <laughs> This is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Lights, camera, Asia. A look at Asian culture and history through the lens of cinema. Hello and welcome to Lights Camera Asia. I'm Jake Chen. In the past two weeks, we went over the plot of Tokyo Story. The main story is rather simplistic and can be summarized in a few sentences. In post World War II Japan, an elderly couple travels from their rural township to Tokyo, the fast-growing metropolitan, to see their adult children. All of them are now grown up, and they have their own respective careers. However, none of them bothers to give their parents much time or attention. The elderly couple eventually get exhausted as they are being sent to different activities, and at the end, the mother falls sick and died at a local hospital, and the father returns to his town to face the lonely life ahead of him. As I said in the introductory episode, Tokyo Story is one of the highest praised movies to ever come out of Japan. Many critics consider it a gem of a film and one that truly and honestly represents the spirit of the Japanese people. However, none of us would be able to fully appreciate it if we only look at the plot. It is how the director shows us the story. That sets it apart from most family dramas. In this episode and the next, we'll try to analyze the movie closely to examine the many techniques that director Yasujiro Ozu employs to convey the emotions effectively. Five minutes into Tokyo Story, and most of us among the audience would immediately realize that the movie simply feels very different. Everything moves along very, very slowly. Some of them even feel static, and everybody in the movie seems to be chugging along at their own lives at a very slow pace. Here is a conversation that takes place between the elderly Hirayama couple as they prepare to set off for Tokyo. そうですか。まあ、今のうちに子供たちにも男を思いましてな。お楽しみですな。東京じゃ皆さんお待ちかねでしょうって。いや、しばらく留守にしますんで、よろしくどうぞ。え、英語ゆっくりと。立派な息子
通気枕ありゃしんよこっちにゃないことないわよう探してみあ,あ,あったあったありゃしたかあ,あ,あった The conversation is, for a lack of a more sophisticated term, slow in every sense of the word. The rate of speech is slow, and the director is not afraid to leave the pauses between their sentences on screen. This might seem to be a minor detail, but in fact, it is a decision that most directors tend not to make. The key in making movies, commercial movies especially, Is to keep the audience engaged and entertained. That means that dialogues in movies are often very different compared to dialogues in real life. Movie conversations are delivered at a much faster pace and are written in a way that dramatizes the emotional connections between the parties involved. So, if we have two people who are at odds with one another, their conversations would be filled with confrontational words. If they are in love, the dialogues will be very romantic. Modern movies also tend to have a lot of quips and sharp comebacks sprinkled in their dialogues to keep the audience entertained. Now that we see the norm in average films, we can see that Tokyo's story clearly is anything but average. From the very first minute to the last, the film presents the life of two elderly, the life of their children, And everyone who are involved in a very realistic pace. We hear and see the characters taking breaks in between sentences for a myriad of reasons, either due to hesitation or to ponder about the issues they want to address in a more detailed manner. This is how real world conversations unfold. They are full of pauses, stutters, and hesitations. And by presenting their characters in such a manner, Tokyo's story immerses us, the viewers, into the world in the film, and it connects us much closer to the characters. The next thing that we in the audience would easily spot is how the characters are shot. In most films, cameras are placed in a V pattern when shooting a conversation. Now, this means that one camera points to one person, and part of the back or the back of the head of the other person will be included in the frame as well. And when the second person talks, the opposite camera frames the person in a similar fashion, and editors in the editing room will cut to the second camera. So, when we, the viewers, watch a conversation through the camera lenses, We can feel one person talking to the other person who sits just a bit off camera. The vast majority of conversations in movies and television shows are shot with this type of camera arrangement and for good reasons. This helps immerse the viewers in the conversation. It makes them feel like they are sitting right next to the person who is being addressed or talked to. So the question is very apparent. If this is the industry standard and it makes a lot of sense, how is Tokyo Story different and why is it different? Well, the best way to describe how a conversation looks in Tokyo Story is that the characters all look straight into the lens and that the other person's body is never included in the frame. This immediately changes the viewer's perspective and their experience. 
because the audience is no longer a close bystander who's looking at a conversation from a close distance, and the audience doesn't see the shoulder and head of the person being addressed, instead they are being addressed directly. So when the elderly couple is having a conversation about what to bring, we feel like we are the mother when the father is talking about a forgotten item, and we feel like we are the father when the mother looks at us straight in the eyes to remind us about something. In order to further add to the sense of involvement, the film's director Yasujiro Ozu has also taken into consideration the height of people's eyeline. See, when Japanese people talk to one another in a household situation, they are usually sitting on their tatami or floor mat. The eye line or the height of their eyes is therefore quite a bit lower than those who are used to sitting on chairs while conducting a conversation. The director therefore lowered all cameras to match this rather unusual height. So this placement, coupled with the fact that a camera points straight at the character every time they talk, generates a feeling that we are the characters and we are being addressed. We are sitting right there. On a Japanese-style format with the rest of the family, the unusual camera placement and the angles is the centerpiece of Tokyo Story's unique aesthetics. Right from the get-go, the director wants to put us, the audience, in a Japanese household as a member of the family, and hearing the conversations as if it would be delivered in a real-world scenario. Well, this admittedly makes the film a bit difficult to follow for those who are used to a more fast-paced movie, including yours truly when watching it for the first time. After a few minutes of adjusting, the film manages to captivate the audience with a sense of engagement that is totally different. Many critics have said that they were utterly mesmerized by the film, and not because it is filled with flares and drama and heightened tension. But because of the sense of authenticity that the film generates, it is palpable, and it succeeds in making the viewers feel part of the story. And once we feel that we are part of the story, it doesn't matter how slow it unfolds and how lack of drama it feels. We are part of that story, and we all look forward to seeing the end of it. Hope you've enjoyed the analysis on the visual elements of Tokyo Story. Next week. We'll look at another aspect of the movie that makes it stand out: the environment. As the film's title suggests, the majority of the plot takes place in the city of Tokyo, the most advanced metropolitan in Japan. It goes without saying that the physical location of the film plays a very important role in advancing the plot and in driving home the emotions. However, if by now we know anything about Ozu, we can expect that. He would show it in a manner that is different from what we would see in most movies. So next week, we'll talk about how Ozu shows the cityscape in a very selected, reserved, and almost sparing manner. We'll talk about how he deliberately chooses to show the city's factory plants and chimneys instead of its glitz and glamour. All these are deliberate decisions that help deliver the mood of the story, one that is somber and reserved.
Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Lights Camera Asia. I'm Jake Chen, and I look forward to talking to you next week. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm. What do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Ryan Terry Bellini is from Silicon Valley in California. He's an entrepreneur, formerly worked for Google and Ripple. He had the experience of coming to Taiwan while working for Google. And that got him to like Taiwan. So later, he had the opportunity to do so on a couple of grounds. One was being that San Francisco is sister city with Taipei. He got a scholarship from the Taipei city government to continue his Chinese studies. Today, though, he is going to begin by talking about this other research grant from Taiwan that he got to write a paper. And then the second was actually a research grant on that paper that I sent you. The research grant was provided by the Global Taiwan Institute. Uh -huh. This is a, a nonprofit think tank headquartered in Washington D.C. Oh, okay. Dupont Circle. Right. So they're kind of the, you know, uh, leading voice for Taiwan policy issues that they give. They provide testimony to U.S. Congress, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, those type of groups. So wow, sounds so important. It's awesome stuff. Yeah, because yeah. as an American living in Taiwan, I want to connect the dots as much as possible. How long did it take you to do the research for this uh, this paper? It was about a full year end to end, and luckily I, I had some great uh, help on the research side from uh, you know friends and students at National Taiwan University. And, students, uh, students are very helpful. Students are very helpful, so <laughs> kind of helped me structure the research, organize interviews, those type of things. Oh, okay. How many pages is the paper? Mm, How many? I, I think don't the know. final one will be twenty five. Okay. Pages, single space, twelve type, yeah, small, <laughs> small typeface font. So okay. it, right. it's over ten thousand words. So it's uh, definitely one of the longest research works I've ever written. Yeah, even longer than the stuff I wrote at Oxford. Well, that's that sounds impressive. I mean, one year research, but I think you packed a lot into one paper for a one year research. You know, I feel like it could, it, it definitely could spawn off into a bunch more papers. But the high level idea that I wanted to capture is. Uh, people who are familiar with Taiwan's modern history 
kind of know the Taiwan miracle. Taiwan's status in Asia is one of the four Asian tigers. Right. Um, so the conditions under which that happened, there are similar circumstances in places like Korea. So, you know, you have kind of like a military-led government that institutes special government or economic policies. That creates better living conditions as the country gets richer, right? So you import more products, more money comes in, it creates more factories, more wealth, more products, et cetera, right? And, and that process ultimately led to Taiwan's democratization in some way because it was mm. like labor organization and people starting to fight more for their rights. So that's like, okay, the Taiwan economic growth created the conditions for democracy. Now that Taiwan is a democracy, okay. how does it manage the economic process differently yeah. than it did when it was just the KMT running yeah. the government? So, yeah. It reminded me that actually Taiwan went through what China's going through now mm. at some point and how Taiwanese people used to be just laborers and how now they learn to enjoy life and, you know, take trips abroad and see the world, yep. that kind of stuff. Middle class. Um, yeah, growing, middle, growing right. A lot. Right. Yep. Um, you had some recommendations for Taiwan, mm. like about five. How do you think we're doing? I think in general, Taiwan is on a good economic path. I think like the new southbound policy has been showing more and more success as time has gone on. Right. It's not um, something where you can just flip a switch and all of a sudden like there's all these bilateral trade ties or cultural exchanges with the countries in the new southbound policy. So I think uh, the Tsai administration has done well in at least shifting. You know, the economy is like a boat, right? Like it's a big tanker, right? Uh -huh. It's not an agile speedboat where you can just move around, right? You have right. to start to reorient the economy towards these markets. And demographically, those are growing much faster. Like China's economy is slowing right now. Whereas these other, uh, you know, young populations, emerging middle classes across Indonesia, Malaysia, these type of places. So I think generally it's a good idea. Um, when it comes to how does Taiwan become more software friendly? Because obviously, traditionally, the uh, technology emphasis of Taiwan is actually on semiconductors and hardware and things like that. I think that also kind of requires a change in the cultural emphasis of education and like what the um, education system promotes in terms of what type of computer knowledge. So rather than focusing on like electrical engineering, it might be more computer science focused. So, okay. I mean, I, I've seen from me growing up, Stanford and Berkeley, places like that, seen less and less people focusing on the hardware side of things and more people focus on software development in those, in those type of universities and programs. Right. And so you're saying that Taiwan should develop more software? Yeah, I think so. Because it's, it, it's hardware is already up there. It's, it's good enough and it should develop more hardware, software, right? It should continue to develop hardware because oh, okay. that's, that's a big, uh, you know, I mean, obviously yeah. the infrastructure is in place. There, right. right? Like TSMC and those type of companies innovating and keep doing things. Uh, I think my bigger point is that the growth for that in the economy has already happened. A lot of other countries like South Korea or Vietnam or these countries or even mainland China, right? They already have the capacity to do the same types of things. Mm -hmm. So it's increasingly competitive. The margins are squeezed more and more. So it's harder for Taiwanese manufacturers to compete in hardware sectors. And a lot yeah. of that has happened just in the last 20 years. So mm. uh, actually at the beginning of Chen Shui-bian's administration, when Tsai Ing-wen was the uh, chairwoman of the Mainland Affairs Council, right? Uh, it was prohibited for a lot of Taiwanese business to go invest and build factories in the mainland. Yeah, right. They lifted that prohibition. That you're right. Yeah. 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 And wow. then that led to, you know, an influx of Taiwanese capital going over to the mainland, like the Foxcons and those type of companies. And uh, a lot of technology transfer, which helped China really catch up. Uh-huh. Because 20 years ago, China was nowhere near the juggernaut it is. You know, Huawei, I don't even know if Huawei existed in 2000. So, so China needs to thank us. <laughs>
to an extent, yes. <laughs> but now the irony is with the U.S.-China trade war, you yes. know, now a lot of the, the manufacturers that had gone to China 20 years ago are now coming back to Taiwan to yes. avoid the, the tariffs that are imposed by the right. Trump administration on those goods. So that's it's right. all like circular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really funny. But that's just how things work around the world, I guess. What other recommendations you have for Taiwan? I don't have a, a firm recommendation on this one, but something needs to be done to increase wages for young people. Yes, you mentioned Wage stagnation that. is is really uh, a vexing problem, I think, for economists. But the, the economic growth at like a GDP level looks good. Uh -huh. But it's like, how do you actually create some trickle-down effect to increase people? Because the living cost is going up, but I haven't seen wages rise no. commensurately at all. That's just why... A lot of young Taiwanese people, they all want to go study abroad or they go work in China where the pay is three times more. What do you think the problem is? Why the wages has been so stagnant for, I don't know, for decades now? I think part of it is maybe the inherited kind of corporate culture from Japan where it's like very hierarchical, uh, very much like, you know, the boss is the boss based on seniority and they get this. And then if you're below that, like there's no sense of market competition for different types of skills or jobs. It's, hmm. it's almost like the, the, the managerial underclass has been commoditized to the point where it's just like there's no uh, market competition that I see to raise wages in those sectors. Huh. That's a, that's a good point to ponder on, really. Yeah. But um, living expenses compared to the rest of the world is still pretty attractive. Not that high. Absolutely. You know? Especially compared but, to other you know, capital cities in yes. East Asia. Yeah. It's fantastic, yeah. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. Other recommendations? Yeah, I think I think uh, the National Development Council, they've got, uh, you know, uh, different initiatives, uh, 5 plus 2 plan, things like that. So but the infrastructure plan? Uh, it? it's, it's more than it's infrastructure. More... It's also, it, it's a wide spectrum of things. So it's yeah. also increasing bilingual education. So oh, making, that's right. uh, you know, English more of a business-friendly language. So for me... Having come here and done entrepreneurial things, uh, the barrier to uh, incorporate a company, set up bank accounts, figure out accounting practices, go to the tax office is all completely unfeasible if you do not have some working knowledge of Chinese unless you just decide to basically hire somebody to do it all for you. Even then, uh, you still probably need to have some understanding of Chinese, right? Yes. I often say to people... Um, I can go set up a company in Singapore in three hours, but in Taiwan it takes three months. <laughs> and isn't, that's oh, not to, that's that not to say sad. the entire but, uh, yeah. gears of the Taiwan bureaucracy are, are broken or not working. It's that uh, they could use some greasing and some modernization in some places. I agree. Uh, because I agree. it is still completely Chinese language driven. And if Taiwan's actually trying to become kind of an international destination for setting up uh, business, because it's very geographically well located, you can create different tax incentives or programs for entrepreneurship, then it really needs to uh, anglicize a bit. Yes, I agree. You know, I know Taiwan just wants so much to be globalized, okay, uh, promoting its globalization. But I always think that, well, then you need to really master English. But it seems like it's so hard for Taiwanese people. Why do you think that is so? Well, See, I mean, I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want to sound too uh No, it's okay. I think dismissive. they need to hear it. <laughs> Well, I, I think one thing is that uh, as far as I can tell um, from lots of the English language programs that I've seen, you know, these kind of private schools where they send the children when they're young and they're quite expensive as far as I know. Oh, I don't yeah. really know what the cost is. Uh, I don't want to say the English teachers are unqualified, but for, from what I understand, people that I've met that teach English there, 
they don't have any background in teaching, teaching. necessarily. Mm. They just happen to be native English speakers. Uh-huh. And uh, having studied Chinese, I'm like, wow, now that I've studied Chinese and see how that language functions, I really think English is quite a complicated language, you know, with <laughs> yeah. the phonetics and the grammar and it all is. these tenses and stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, if you don't have any qualification or linguistics background to have methods to actually teach English effectively. I mean, it's one thing to teach English in the like apple, cat, dog, you know, just like vocabulary, but it's another to teach it, uh, you know, to write it fluently, to, you know, expand on Mm. different ideas or have different structure and syntax and things like that. That's Maybe there'll be a business for you. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm not capable of... To get some, you know, talents in in that sense. So, so I, I should can. I should shout out uh, David <laughs> David Chang at, at Crossroads. He's doing a lot of work on that. I, I that is true. You know well, I have interviewed. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. So I guess he's on it. Well, he's on more important things. But he, we, he, we need he, talents he, like you. He's also well. <laughs> he's also doing. Uh, he's working very closely with people in the government on that bilingual English language yes. initiative. So that's right. I'm sure that's they will right. have mu- much more concrete recommendations then, than I can develop. Okay. So. <laughs> All right, where do you want to go from here? Um, mm. You've got a lot of ideas, and um, what what is something that you really would like to accomplish? Sort of like a, a near dream that you have. So uh, one vision I have for Taiwan that I think would be very interesting and relevant, given its uh, political this ambiguity of Taiwan's political status, would be the idea of creating like a digital citizenship or digital residency. For people who do not actually live in Taiwan, but people who uh, kind of associate or want to be a member of the ideas of Taiwan, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, Taiwan's obviously formally excluded from lots of international organizations and bodies such as the UN. Yes. But, you know, the Republic of China on Taiwan maintains sovereignty and through the power of cyberspace or digital information exchange, people can say, you know, I want to set up a business digitally in Taiwan or I want to... Um, domicile some sort of idea or some sort of intellectual property in Taiwan, things like that. Mm. So if you can... Without having to be here physically. Yeah, without having to be here physically. So Estonia Mm. has kind of pioneered a similar program in Europe. So like right now, my brother lives in the UK, in London, and, you know, Brexit's creating some uncertainty around, you know, how you do business in the continent. So he can stay resident living in London, but he can incorporate, he can become a digital resident of Estonia and incorporate a business there and then still accrue all the benefits of Mm. having a business in the EU. Okay. What what if Taiwan did something similar? Wow. It's really at the crossroads of manufacturing. You can create, I mean, there's service industry here for accounting or finance or banking. Those are all available and should be more competitive. So, so that's what pl- you want to do. Plug all these things into a digital infrastructure where Taiwan doesn't need to focus as much on state to state relations because we see, you know, Taiwan's remaining diplomatic allies dwindling by the year, huh. <laughs> right? Go yeah. from in size first term right go from 21 to 15 because china just keeps poaching and poaching and poaching what if taiwan instead built systems and programs that connect their existing ministries or government systems among these diplomatic allies and not amongst the diplomatic allies but from just from the state of roc taiwan to to... individual citizens of other countries so i call it state to citizen relations so rather than state rather than focus on state to state diplomacy what can taiwan do to actually uh get buy-in or soft power interest from people in other countries around the world who want to do business in Asia. All right. Well, it's been awesome listening to you, um, Ryan. And um, thank you so much for having such vision for Taiwan. 
good luck with everything you're doing for us here. <laughs> I hope I can execute on some of these visions. Yeah, I think you you want to. So it's just maybe getting to the right people and the right channels, and um, it it always helps to get government assistance. But yeah, to reach that is uh, a challenge in itself. It's a long game. Yes, it is. So absent of me becoming a legislator one day, I'm not sure what I could do in the short term. <laughs> Other than work with great ministers and, and great people in the Taiwan government. Okay. Well, you know some great people that yeah. I've interviewed. And I think if you guys were all, were all to work together, it, it helps. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much thank for, you for coming me, in. Yeah. Good luck. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. <laughs>